Hello, and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast. This podcast is ran by two ladies who play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and listener discretion is advised. crime podcast my name is jen and my name is emily welcome <laughs> you okay there em? i think i had a stroke <laughs> like i'm not sure but um oh did i say my name oh i did yes my name is emily uh and guys welcome back to another week of of the lovely wheel of crime podcast we're off to a great start <laughs> yeah it's fantastico wow okay um yeah our april easter bunny episode was our last one oh my god are you drunk like are you okay (laughs) no i'm just insane okay uh anyways so how was your last week jen pretty good i uh I guess I'll share this news with the podcast. I got engaged. Oh, wow. <laughs> Such an adult now. I have been very excited because of who I am as a person. And <laughs> I'm just very happy that I also like who you're marrying because now both of you are stuck with me forever. Well, I think we were before too, but this That's just kind of seals the deal. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes, so that's always exciting, though, because now you get to go through all these different, like, uh, not necessarily changes, but it's it's another experience to have together, so that part's always nice. Exactly. Emily and I were talking about uh, my engagement right before we started recording, and it kind of led us down the uh, rabbit hole of <laughs> high school people and just, like, different weird things that they're up to because we're both in our 20s. And Emily just randomly dropped the bomb that she was asked to join a cult and she never told me. Do you care to explain? I guess so. So, uh, um, um, I'm going to preface with, I am very naturally, I don't know if it's like trusting or if I'm just stupid. It might be both. But basically, I had a girl that we went to high school with reach out to me probably like it was like a couple years or like three years after high school. And at this time, I started working with uh, like in and doing business stuff. So she reached out to me and she was like, oh, hey, like I see that you're working in business. Like, would you be interested in meeting with me for coffee and just kind of telling me what that's like? Because I'm interested in working with like uh, like doing business stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. sure free knowledge i don't care (laughs) so (laughs) i met up with her and it ended up turning into this conversation where she was telling me about how like her goals were to make a business that was like a like a hiring thing for this other like thing that she was a part of where she could like 
help people, like, uh, be a part of this, like, network where she would be having people teach them about, like, um, about, uh, like, growing their minds. And, like, it was, like, a healthy living, like, meditation thing, but also, like, where you're working all the time. So then you, like, base your business around this, like, healthy living lifestyle and that she wanted to get to where she had, like, this, like, person who guided her. So she wanted to be at the same level as the person who guided her so then she could, like, kind of, like, move up within this, like, thing that she was a part of. And and she wouldn't tell me the name of it. So I will say that. She wouldn't tell me the name of what she was a part of. But she would, like, ask me questions and they wouldn't make sense. And I would try to, like, answer because I was like, well, if this is a question about business, then, like, this. And she'd be like, no, 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 no. Like, we need more people like you who, like, work with business to, like to, like, work with us. And, like, I think that you'd be, like, the perfect fit. If you want to meet with me again, you'd be meeting with, like, my, whoever it was who, who, who's, like, her guide or whatever and, uh, get, like, a chance to, like, uh, meet more people and talk to them about this kind of stuff. And I was, like, Literally, when she was explaining to me, I'm like, that sounds exactly like the fucking Nexium cult, which... I need to do a story on now because that is hella wild. Yes, and then when Jenny talks about it, she will give you more details about that. But basically, uh, I never met with this person again because I got weird vibes from the whole thing. Which, I mean, fitting since I was being interviewed to become a part of a cult. And I just (laughs) never figured it out. Like, I never figured it out. I was talking to Jenny about it, and I was like, oh my god, yeah, like, did I ever, like, <laughs> tell you about this, like, really weird thing that happened? And she's like, what? Sorry? <laughs> like, <laughs> you See, this happens when you move away, and I do things by myself. People try to hire me <laughs> into cults. This is your fault oh for not being god. here. <laughs> the next time we move, I'm gonna have to bring you with me for the safety of yourself. You might have to. And, like... What's funnier to me is that I remember talking to Andrew about this and he didn't figure it out either. He's like, oh, that's weird. And we just never thought about it again. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> She's like literally describing a cult to me. And I'm like, um, yeah, that's gonna be like a no for me. Literally. And we do this podcast and everything. And I just like couldn't clue in to what it uh, like cult recruitment sounds like. If I was a different person, I might have gone and be, like, a completely different person today. I mean, I'm so curious, and I wish you could remember, like, more details, because... I wish you could remember who it was, because you definitely met this person. Like, this is somebody that we were in high school with together, and we had classes with this person. I just cannot remember her name. I need to know. Like, I feel like, you know... I would like to know if I was inducted into a cult, if I, like, you know, could, rem- like, keep my free will, or if, like, I would also be indoctrinated. Well, you know, could be a good social I feel social like I would experiment. be indoctrinated, because I, I left that conversation not even realizing that it was a cult. <laughs> like, I would have been blissfully unaware as everything happened to me and be like, blah, 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 blah. Like, I would not be able to keep my wits about me. Nope. Don't think so. Well... Maybe my next episode, I'll talk about the Nexium cult because that's hella spooky. Well, now it's a little personal, so (laughs) (laughs) I can only laugh about it because I'm stupid. Love that for me. (laughs) Well, how was your week other than uh, remembering that you were almost inducted into a cult? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) 
<laughs> definitely the highlight of the week. Um, <laughs> honestly, though, really not a lot. I feel like uh, now that the spring's here, people in general are starting to be a lot happier and they're like going out more, which is mm-hmm. great for me because I hate being around grouchy people, even though I am one. But uh, I did have the, the pleasure of dealing with uh, getting my wedding bands soldered onto my engagement ring because I know most people do it after the ceremony, but I would just rather get everything done ahead of time uh, just so I don't have to think about it. So Are I you going to tell them that. when your wedding is? Uh, June-ish, guys. <laughs> Mid-June. <laughs> Mid-June-ish. Yeah, so it's coming <laughs> up soon. And um, I... So anyways, I went to go get that done and I did not realize this at the time, but... When you get your rings soldered together, uh, you actually go up in size because it's not going to fit on the same part of your finger as a thinner band does. So even though you might have your engagement band size to be a certain size, that's not the size it's going to be for when you get married. Mm. I do wish somebody had said that to me because I picked up my wedding band today and I was like, hmm... It don't even fit past my knuckle. What happened here? Everything was fine earlier this week. So now I gotta go get that figured out. And uh, that's literally been my week. Just vibing. Just vibing. (laughs) Getting your wedding rings way too small. Yep. Remembering that time you almost joined a cult. You have just... It's the little things. (laughs) The little things. Emily did send me the cutest uh, voice memo when I told her I got engaged. So I really want to play it for you guys. Okay, that was just as a heads up, that was me restraining the urge to scream because I live in an apartment building and somebody would have called the police. I know they would have. Oh my God. Okay. Are you guys ready? Here she is. Oh my God. Yes, 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 yes. I got straight up musical. I don't think I've hit a note, period, in my life, except for right then. (laughs) That is so great. I love it so much. It made my day. Just for you. Uh, Yeah. Okay. But on that note, we should definitely spin our wheel of questions and get on with the show. Let's, Let's spin the wheel. If you had to guess... Which province do you think hosted Canada's first serial killer? If I had to guess which province? Yes. Mm. I want to say Ontario, but I feel like it's probably Alberta. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Just because I know British crazy Columbia. bitches live in Ontario. <laughs> it's British True. Columbia? It is British Columbia. The first, oh. one of the first known ones. I'm sure there probably was someone before that, but the first yeah. known one came from BC. But they're all stoned. How could there be, how could people kill each other? It do just be like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, should we spin for our next question then? Yes, let's do it. If you had to take a swing, who do you think... uh, Describe to me who you think 
uh, Canada's first known serial killer is slash would be like. Like, you know, you might not know the exact person, but, you know, tell me if you had to guess. Who are they? What's their story? If it's in BC, I want to say Robert Picton. That was, like, the first thought that popped into my head. But I actually am not sure what kind of person they would be. Um, Not a stoner if they're killing people, I guess. Maybe they like <laughs> to swim? <laughs> I don't know. They like to swim. Perfect. I said swim, but they could also oh, like swinging, swim. I guess. <laughs> yeah, they're a swinger. <laughs> There's, they're a swinger who also frequents the pool. Uh, that's what I will settle on. Mm. Okay, perfect. Right? That's just, that's the vibe I'm going with. You know, that's a pretty good vibe. What about you? I know too much. I can't. I know too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. On that note, then I'll spin for the next one. Okay. What antiquated job would you want to have? Um, like, for example, like a job that like would have been really popular like years ago or even centuries ago that like no longer exists, you know? Like a like a milkman or you know, like those types of jobs. I don't know. <laughs> maybe like a blacksmith or something like an making swords an old timey ho you mean a bar wench i could be one of those today <laughs> no i feel like a, a black like a blacksmith is that like who who would make swords and stuff i feel like that's definitely an antiqu- antiquated job but it sounds like it would be a cool one i feel like blacks because that's like metal right so i think it would mm-hmm. depend like where you were living in the world but yeah i think a blacksmith would be the person who would make cool katanas and swords and shit yeah i'd be that person that sounds kind of fun it does sound kind of fun well what about you then <sighs> hmm i don't know would you like would you have worked at the cannery the cannery <laughs> yeah uh like Obviously, I mean, like, this is kind of an antiquated job, but, like, kind of not. Um, to preface, I've been watching a lot of Mad Men lately, so I really am like, hmm, I could have worked in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, just cash. Just super cash. All right, I see you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Should we then spin for our last question? Exactly. All right. Give it to me, Jen. What kind of demeaning job did you have as a teenager? (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) Demeaning job. See... Demeaning or monotonous or just like boring or like. I'll tell you my worst job I had as a teenager because I remember it vividly. Ooh, tell. (laughs) It was, um, I worked at a retirement home and Mm. I had to, uh, serve all of the elderly folks there their meals, which you think would be simple, but the problem is, is that a lot of them have dementia. So then if you didn't bring them the right thing that they didn't order... Everything would go to hell. And that happened 
literally every time I worked. That, and there was only one person I liked there who was, like, one of the elderly folks that I was uh, giving food to. And it was, like, a month into the job. I show up one day, and he's not sitting in his usual spot. And I was like, oh, what happened to so-and-so? And they were like, oh, you missed it. When you were off yesterday, he actually died at supper time. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, and I was like, oh, bye, guys. And I literally put my resignation in notice in that day. Because that was the only reason I was even staying at that job. Like, everybody I worked with was so mean. If any of the <laughs> residents, like, stole, say, like, sugar, like, sugar packets while you were working, you'd get in trouble for it and you'd have to work extra time for it. Um, excuse me? That's illegal. <laughs> oh, I know. There's a lot of things about it where I was like, hmm. 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 I see now why you guys hire 16-year-olds. I think I understand. Well, I remember when you were working that job, and I hated my job at that time, but I was like, yeah, my job is still better than Emily's. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I think everybody had that thought, because I would, like, explain what I had to do, and I'd be like, yeah, I give old people food, and then they get mad and throw stuff at me, and then I have to work extra to make up for it, and people were like, mmm. <laughs> that sounds heinous. They were like, uh, and you still work there? Like, why? <laughs> I remember, because you worked there with two other girls that we went to high school with, right? Yeah, or, yeah, it was two other girls I went to high school with, but the one would, like, claim that was, like, one of the best jobs she ever had, which I don't believe her, but she still works, not at the same retirement home, but she has, like, a part-time job there, quote-unquote, where she picks up random shifts for a different one doing the same thing still. Oh my god. I would never. Right? <laughs> I would never either and I'm never <laughs> going to again. That's over for me. See, I, I love old people. They can be great. You know, R respect the elderly. I get it. But like, I could never do that job because I'm horrible at making small talk and I just would rather pass away. See, for me, the small talk is fine. That's actually like no. one thing where for some reason <laughs> I have a skill fine. for it. My problem was my memory. Mm. So they wouldn't give you notepads because it made you, quote unquote, look unprofessional. So Excuse you'd have to memorize everything that your table would need. And they would have up to six residents at a table with a full menu in front of them. And you would to remember what every single person wanted. Sometimes you'd make a mistake. But like I was saying, because they have people who are elderly staying there... They also had memory problems. So, like, say, for example, there was one lady, every single time she would order one thing, and then when you brought it to her, she would get mad at you because she changed her mind and ordered something else, or she thought she ordered something else, or she forgot that she ordered anything. Like, it was just a very mm -hmm. frustrating thing. But if it happened and it looked more like you forgot what you were doing versus what the resident forgot, mm -hmm. then... It was the same thing. You got in trouble and you had to put an extra time in afterwards. See, that's total BS. I would have been like, that's illegal. I'll be billing for this time. Mm -hmm. You dumb bitches. Right? And like, normally people would be excited to have more time to put into work because it means you're getting paid more. But what it was, was um, if you had one of these things happen and they were like, okay, you're staying late... You would have to vacuum the whole building and then you would have to prepare like a cutlery and like utensils and every and everything for the breakfast meal the next day, which isn't the job of say like the supper shift. 
It's the mm-hmm. job of the morning people when they're setting everything out. So then you would also get in trouble if you set everything out and, like, say a resident came downstairs and, like, say took, like, a cutlery set and that table was missing a cutlery set, then you'd get in trouble for it. But how is that even your fault? Listen, like I said, <laughs> there's many reasons why I don't work there anymore. And, like, the managers changed out, like, every two weeks. I still don't understand what was going on. Well, it's probably because it was such an awful place to work. Yep. They probably. didn't want to be there either. <laughs> They're like, we don't like it either. <laughs> Good times. But no, what about your worst job or like your most like demeaning teenager oh, I can... job? I mean, I think my like least favorite job from when I was like a teenager, not, not even thinking about my adult life. Um, was when we worked at the greenhouse together because <laughs> we were so underpaid for, for the labor that we had to do. And mm-hmm. there was that fucking lady on her goddamn golf cart who would be like, walk faster as she Literally. scooted off. And she'd like roll over her feet as she was like <laughs> taking off down the sidewalk. Yeah. yeah. I remember. And then I remember too, because uh, I remember at that job, I asked one of the girls who was our age, watering the plants like hey like uh how did you get this job and she was like oh i was a laborer the previous year and then they hired me back this year as like a waterer and i was like wow watering seems like a way cooler job and much less work (laughs) so and i asked and i was like oh like if we were to come back next year would we be water would we be able to be waterers and the person i talked to he like looked at me and he was like for you guys i don't think so i believe the positions are going to be filled for the next few years (gasps) And I was oh, like, you how rude. bitch, how dare you? I just remember Emily quit. Like, okay, so I was, I <laughs> did not care about this job at all. I'm going to expose us if that's okay with you, Em. Um, <laughs> so Emily called, or I called in sick because I just didn't want to go in and I wanted to do something with my boyfriend. And so then Emily calls me at like noon and she's like, come pick me up. I'm going home. I quit. (laughs) I did. I quit right in the middle of the day. I literally looked at this guy and I was like, look, I love being around plants and shit. However, (laughs) I think I made, I made something up where I was like, because at the time I was also working at the tanning salon and I was like, my shift's picking up at the tanning salon. I'm not going to have no more time to be here. Sorry, my, sorry, my guy. I, I gotta go. I have a shift at two. And then he's like, oh, weird. Okay. Uh, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> and then I called Jenny and I was like, I need a ride. <laughs> so we fucking go around the back way to go pick her up at like fucking... I- what was what time was it was it like noon or was it like it was 6 a.m i can't remember it was just after noon and i remember you took the back way because you were driving a mustang at the time and everybody knew what your vehicle looked like so i had to and... like go and meet you in the middle of a country road to, <laughs> to like <laughs> well that's because like i'd called in sick and i was still working there and then so emily quit and then i went back for my next shift and this other girl who we didn't really know but we had made friends with was like oh yeah i'm leaving because i got this like cool internship that's more in line with my career Mm -hmm. and then i went in for my next shift after that and i was literally like alone and i'm like this is the worst job ever and now my best friend and the other person i made friends with don't even work here yeah so i was like on the spot like i'm sorry i i got an internship or something i gotta go (laughs) 
Which, like, I want to feel bad. Because, like, I won't lie to you. Like, they were, like, decent people. I wouldn't say nice. But, like, they weren't mean. But the problem was that I just remember we were working, like, a shift where it was, like, five to, like, four or something. But we worked, like, every day. And it was very labor-intensive. And, and it, it felt like no matter how much I slept, mm-hmm. I could never recover. Like, I was just completely burnt out every single day. I know, because the first thing is, we weren't, we were, like, 17 at the time, so we weren't used to that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And then they made us work uh, Mother's Day and the Saturday before Mother's Day, which were both really busy days, because those were the only days the greenhouse was open to the public. And so I remember we worked, like, 16 hour days both of those mm-hmm. days and got no time off like and the whole it was time, minimum wage and we didn't make any overtime yeah and the whole time we worked there i think we both worked there for like two weeks or whatever i got no days off besides the one sick day i took yeah i remember the only day that i ever had off was like if i called in and what and like wasn't able to show up that day but then they also said if you did the three times at all like regardless of whether or not it was a sick day because it was like a temporary hiring position then they wouldn't have you come back and i was like well what happens if i'm sick for more than three days then like i don't have a job anymore like what do you mean and the fucking lady with her golf cart was just the last straw okay, I was like, the golf I cart just... lady i think she never liked us <laughs> which i mean like a pair of like shitty 17 year olds who like are fucking around in the petunias for like hours like sure i could see why she would be frustrated but like i don't know ma'am there was just a lot (laughs) it was also just like such laboring work like i i was so tired like i had never been more tired in my life i remembered i would get home from work eat something and i would go to bed at like 7 p.m and Mm -hmm. i wouldn't wake up until the next day and i was still tired I know. We would, like, literally, I remember, I, like, have this vivid memory of one of, uh, I think it was, like, our third day. We went to McDonald's after work, and we were both eating a poutine. Mm-hmm. And we were just, like, sitting there looking at each other, like, dead in the <laughs> eyes, like, picking at our food. Yeah. And then we both went home and just slept until the next morning at 4 a.m. when I had to come pick you up. Yep. Good times, though. Good times. <laughs> oh gosh all right jen i have literally no idea what you're covering other than it's canadian from british columbia and uh might have to do with a swimmer or a swinger or a stoner or all of the above or all of the above so yeah i don't know well what is your story for today Unfortunately, not a swinger, stoner, or a swimmer, but oh. it is a Canadian from British Columbia. So, uh, let me just uh, jump right into it. All right. Okay, so today we are going to talk about a man named Clifford Robert Olson Jr. He was born on January 1st in 1940 in Vancouver, British Columbia. And he lived in a small house near the Pacific National Exhibition Grounds. He was one of four children, and he had two brothers, one named Richard and one named Dennis. He also had a sister named Sharon. And his father was named Clifford Olson Sr., and he was a milkman. 
When his dad delivered milk, he was one of the last to drive a horse-drawn cart. That's which is hilarious. Yeah. I have literally never even thought about milkmen. Like, I know it's a joke for, like, oh, like, the milkman's daughter or whatever is, like, a like a cheating story. Mm-hmm. But I forgot that was an actual profession at one point. <laughs> well, I did say antiquated. Yes, you sure did. Um, so his, yeah, his, his dad was a, a milkman, you know, riding around on his horse and buggy. And his I mom wish. was a housekeeper um his dad later though worked in construction and was an apartment building manager and after the war the family moved to the sprouting suburb of richmond in which is just outside of vancouver Mm -hmm. and into one of the many housing schemes for returning veterans clifford was known as a short and stocky kid and was always a problem child that's never a good start (laughs) no Many who knew him described him as a bully and a petty thief who tormented cats and dogs and was bold enough to snatch berries and flowers from backyard patches and then try to sell them back to the unsuspecting residents. (laughs) That's very British Columbia. (laughs) Let me just steal your flowers and then sell them back to you at a fucking profit. (laughs) And then they go in their backyard and they're like, Wait a minute. <laughs> hey. Hey. I knew these would match perfectly. It's because they're mine. <laughs> where where did my tulips go? Oh no. My petunias. Oh god. Petunias are the worst kind of flower. I would totally agree. And I only have that strong opinion because of working at the fucking Because of our job. Yep. Awful. But anyways. <sighs> so his dad was quoted as saying he was always getting into fights at school and getting beaten up. And he, uh, his dad said that one day he said to me, Dad, I'm going to learn to be a boxer. As soon as he did, he began making the rounds of the boys who had beaten him up and evening the score. Maybe that's trouble, that chip on his shoulder. His dad said that in an interview with the Globe and Mail. So, um, clearly his parents are not thinking very highly of him. No, I would say not. But I will say good for him on being like, I'm going to be a wrestler and then taking out anybody who ever bullied him. Like, (laughs) honestly, same. To be fair, good for him on that aspect. I understand. Just that, you know. Um, But Clifford's former boxing coach, Tommy Yule, had a much more positive things to say about him from that period in his life. He said that he was a good boy and he was the runner-up in the Bronze Gloves Tournament in 1954 and deemed the most sportsmanlike boxer four years later in the Golden Gloves Tournament. But all in all, he was a troublemaker and he began to skip class when he was only 10 years old and after completing 8th grade, he quit altogether to embrace a life of crime. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> he lived with his parents until he was sent to jail for breaking breaking and entering when he was only 17 on July 19, 1957. He met his future wife, Joan Hale, who was a short, nervous divorcee with reddish-brown hair in February of 1980. They were married on May 15, 1981, in the People's Full Gospel Chapel in Surrey, uh, a month after their son Stephen was born. 
So it had kind of appeared for a period of time that maybe Clifford had taken a turn for the better as he was a frequent churchgoer telling anybody who would listen that he had found God and weighing down his coffee table with with a Bible. He even posted a solicitation on the church bulletin board advertising window washing jobs for teenagers. However, unbeknownst to his wife and the people in his life, Clifford had actually made his living as a scam artist and a thief. I mean, though, that was a pretty obvious start from the whole robbing people and then selling their possessions back to them in the beginning. That's pretty <laughs> scammy. I'm I not going to lie. Born a scammer, still a scammer. What can we expect? Scam the way through life. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, from the ages of 17 to 41 years old, he chalked up nearly 100 convictions, including obstructing justice, possession of stolen property, possession of firearms, forgery, false pretenses, fraud, parole violation, impaired driving, theft, break and enter, um, armed robbery, escape from lawful custody, rape, burglary gross indecency and then finally first degree murder (laughs) that's a lot he's been busy or he was busy (laughs) was busy so before marrying his wife joan he'd already murdered three children (laughs) what (laughs) yeah but his wife uh was like don't know yeah no this guy seems like he's a bit of a crazy bitch just a little bit of one just just a little bit so his first known victim is christine weller who was 12 years old and from surrey british columbia she was abducted on november 17th 1980 her body was found more than a month later on christmas day she had been strangled with a belt and stabbed repeatedly on april 16th 1981 colleen uh dugant who was 13 vanished Five months later, her body was found. On April 22nd, 1981, Darren Todd Johnsrud, who was 16, was abducted and killed. His body was found less than two weeks later. On May 19th, 1981, 16-year-old Sarah Wolfsteiner was murdered and 13-year-old Ada Court was murdered on June 1981. Six victims followed in quick succession in July 1981. Simon Parrington, who was nine, was abducted, raped, and strangled on July 2nd, 1981. Judy Cosma, a 14-year-old from New Westminster, was raped and later strangled. Her body was discovered on July 25th near Weaver Lake. The next victims were Raymond King II, who was 15, abducted on July 23rd. He was raped and bludgeoned to death. Singran Ard, a 18-year-old German tourist, was raped and bludgeoned two days later. Terry Lynn Carson was 15. She was raped and strangled on July 27th. And Mary Louise Chartrand, who was 17, the last victim identified, died on July 30th. All of his victims had been drugged and killed in a murderous spree lasting only nine months from November 1980 through July 1981, Well, Clifford was out of prison from another crime and on mandatory supervision. That's a lot. This guy does too much. In nine months, he killed like 11 people. 
and just wasn't caught yet like he was on like the thing is he was like out of crime but he was still like on supervision from being released from jail so well whoever was supervising him needs to get a different job because i don't think this is for them maybe as a milkman like i don't know (laughs) maybe it's maybe uh the supervisor had a different antiquated job that they were more focused on Mm, probably so clifford was finally arrested on august 12th 1981 near port alberni on vancouver island in suspicion of trying to abduct two female hitchhikers in his car by that time the 41 year old habitual criminal had spent more than half of his life behind bars and was facing more than a dozen outstanding charges He was taken to Chilliwack for questioning and charged two days later for the murder of Judy Cosma, whose nude body with multiple stab wounds had been discovered um, in late July. So by this time, Clifford had racked up a few nicknames as well, known as the Beast of British Columbia, Canada's National Monster, Canada's First Boogeyman, and the Rent-A-Car Killer, and he got the latter nickname because of his preference for renting a new car for each of the killings. He was also regarded as one of Canada's first known serial killers. See how? I feel like renting a car, period, is usually suspicious enough (laughs) for most people. How did he rent out more than 11 cars and nobody batted an either? Like, yeah. It was the 80s. He just... He has money. This is how he spends it. <laughs> like, I don't know. Just just let him live, Emily. Come on. God. I guess. What else are you going to do? But So, the police had found the body of Judy, but they didn't have much of a lead on Clifford's other victims. And they were also having a hard time getting a confession out of him. So, getting his confession and finding the other victims obviously became the urgent preoccupation for police who were caught between trying to bring a murderer to justice without any concrete evidence and, you know, dealing with the horrified families who were desperate to know what had happened to their children and to reclaim what remained of their brutalized bodies, you know? Right. That would be hard. That would be a tough place to be in. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, in order to get the information they needed from Clifford, the police struck a secret deal with him that, and that deal eventually came out in the public and was extremely controversial. Uh, can you, any guesses as to what kind of deal they did to get him to tell them all this information? They probably, if it was the 80s, they probably took the death penalty or something off the table. I don't know. Does Canada have a death penalty? Maybe? Uh, It doesn't anymore, but I think we used to. Okay. Yeah, they might have taken it off the table and been like, well, we can't kill you. Just tell us everything else and we'll give you a reduced sentence or something is what I imagine. I don't know. That is not what they did. So the police had agreed to pay Clifford thirty thousand dollars for evidence on the four bodies they had already recovered before his arrest and they offered him an additional ten thousand dollars for each body that he told them where it was fuck off no yes no so and clifford so now he's murdered people and he's rich what do you mean (laughs) 
So uh, Clifford was annoyed at this deal, though, because um, he had already provided details about one of the murders free of charge, and he referred to it as free a freebie. Free of charge? No! That is foul. I can't believe that. That so, should be illegal. That should be illegal. So the money was paid in advance before oh, he told them the details. Off. It was no. paid in advance to his wife, Joan. Um, <laughs> which makes me want to die. Okay. It does. Um, anyways, it was paid in advance to his wife, Joan, who had moved with their baby son to her parents' home in, near Vancouver. And like in the kitsilano area of vancouver and Mm -hmm. this arrangement went on for a time before the police put an end to it though clifford offered them a last-ditch bargain deal of 20 more bodies for a hundred thousand dollars total which they refused but all in all they still paid his wife ten thousand or sorry a hundred thousand dollars in cash that's unbelievable like he killed so many people like, especially, like, kids? And then he gets paid for it? Like, $100,000. He got $100,000. literally... That literally is what happens when people hire a hitman. <laughs> like, you know? That... I don't like it. No. Mm-mm. I don't think so. So, remember, the police did this in secret. But during his trial, this cash for bodies deal was exposed and the public and the families of the victims were rightfully fucking pissed. Good. They were like, excuse me, you're giving this man who murdered my child $100,000? Literally, how about my child was killed by this man that you're now paying? Where's my money? Well, that is actually what they said. So, um... The families of the victims sued in the Supreme Court of B.C. in October of 1984 to have the $100,000 trust fund declared fraudulent and the remaining money given to them as compensation for the murder of their children. Clifford's wife, Joan, had played the devoted, trusting wife throughout his trial, but... When she was called as a witness in the lawsuit brought by the families of the seven victims, her story seemed to change. Because remember, she's the one who got all this money, right? Mm -hmm, And now they want it back. Mm -hmm. And Joan had reverted back to her maiden name at this time. And she testified that her husband was an alcoholic who frequently beat and threatened to slash her throat. While on the stand, she sobbed and clutched a Bible, and she also admitted that he had confessed his crimes to her after his trial, and apparently he said to her, What can I say, honey? I did it. It was the booze and the pills. She then divorced him in 1985, but the BC Court of Appeal unanimously ruled against the families in March of 1986, arguing that the RSM rcmp payment was not made as compensation for the deaths of the children rather it was authorized to obtain evidence to convict olson of the murders the supreme court of canada refused to hear the case on a later appeal the same year what (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they sued and they're like hang on so their their whole reasoning was um well the payment was in order to obtain evidence, so it was authorized, but they already had the evidence? Well, $30,000 of that $100,000 that he got 
was a payment for bodies that they already had before his arrest. So, to me, I'm like, that makes no fucking sense. Why did you agree to give him $30,000 for evidence you already had? How did that even get on the table? It's like, it's like what I was saying before. It sounds like a hit. Like, it sounds like he, like, in a weird, backwards way of things, what happened is the government paid him. Yeah, it's like a reverse hit. Paid him to admit about a bunch of bodies he stole, or not stole, sorry, killed, or people he killed. And, like, for each individual one, he got paid a certain amount for it. That is literally, like, a hitman scheme. Yeah. But, um, so to kind of back up to Clifford's trial, in January of 1982, he pleaded guilty to 11 counts of murder and was given as many concurrent uh, life sentences to be served and Canada's super maximum super maximum security special handling unit in Quebec which houses many of Canada's most dangerous criminals at his sentencing on January 14th of 1982 the judge remarked my considered opinion is you that you should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days it would be foolhardily foolhardy to let you at large which i agreed with that mm-hmm. sentiment please I do not agree. let this fucking man out no no thank the you. government's just gonna give him more money <laughs> just take all of the tax dollars just have them <laughs> all of them oh my gosh so Clifford was, uh, he, so he first went to that jail in Quebec and then he was sent more than halfway across the country after his murder trial and incarcerated in the Kingston Penitentiary in February of 1982. He spent 23 hours a day in his cell in a special administrative segregation unit in E-Block housing inmates who needed protection from fellow prisoners. In his first seven years, he made five requests for a transfer and wangled a trip back to Vancouver after duping the police with tales about his complicity in unsolved crimes. So, like, he's still scamming from prison. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, send me back to Vancouver because I can help you in other crimes. And then he would go back and they'd be like, okay, what's the information? He'd be like, ha, 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 never mind. Yeah, and then he's like, what are you going to do, pay to send me back? I'm staying. And then they did. And then they did that five times. Nice. Our tax so dollars at work. Who, what kind of dummies are assigned to, like, deal with this man? Like, <laughs> like seriously. <laughs> I maybe, don't know. Maybe they're dummies like me who go to an interview about a cult without realizing that they're getting interviewed to be in a cult. It's possible. Maybe it's the cult leaders themselves. Who knows? Who knows? So, two years later, the E-Block had been shut down and Clifford moved to H-Block. And even there, he was placed as far away from the others as possible and put into a specially reinforced cell with flooring, with floor-to-ceiling plexiglass covering the bars. Because, FYI, in his, uh, before he was convicted of these murders, he had escaped from like jail seven times <laughs> nice <laughs> i hate Sick. everything about this man i just i do 
but even his isolation couldn't muffle the incessant sounds of his typing as he wrote pornographic and sadistic memoirs of his crimes, produced legal challenges, and before authorities started screening his mail, composed really explicit and threatening letters to some of the families of the victims. What is happening? (laughs) Like... They're not even looking at his mail? Like, he's they a psychopath. Weren't. Like, what do you mean? I know. Um, I was reading an article. This is kind of off topic. But uh, one of his lawyers from when he was being, like, processed in his trial uh, mm-hmm. visited him in jail later and was conducting, like, thorough and, like, a psych evaluation of him. And he scored a 48 out of 50 on, like, the psychotic... Spectrum. <laughs> nice. Wow. So I feel like there might be some mental health uh, problems there. I would agree with that. Yes. That sounds... Yes. In 1992, after complaining about back pain, Clifford was sent for x-rays to a Kingston hospital. Technicians found handcuff keys stolen from prison guards tucked up into his rectum. That escape attempt thwarted. Clifford was transferred after almost a decade of uh, horrible behavior in Kingston to the special handling unit in the maximum security federal penitentiary in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Under Canadian law, Clifford was entitled to oh, make a case I drove for... by that prison before. Oh, really? Yeah, just a fun fact. Well, th- did you see our pal Cliff? I don't think so. I didn't see anybody. Good, though. <laughs> so, under Canadian law, Clifford was entitled to make a case for parole every two years, and he repeatedly did so. In 1997, he was denied parole, for which he applied under Canada's Faint Hope Clause, which allowed a parole hearing for convicts who had served at least 15 years. Canadian law allows inmates convicted of first-degree murder to apply for parole after serving a minimum of 25 years, and Clifford's second parole hearing on Janu- on July 18, 2006, was also denied. So in prison, he tampered with one-cent stamps to increase their postage value, which got him a warning of prosecution from Canada Post, and he sent p- porn pictures and letters to politicians. He wrangled close to $1,200 a month in old age pension payments from the Canadian government, and he sent letters to U.S. presidents and prime ministers and claimed of having advanced knowledge of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on America. This false claim about the prior knowledge about 9-11 also led him to claim that the U.S. had granted him clemency for providing information and that the hearing had no jurisdiction over him because of that. Which was total BS. And they're like, nah, dude. <laughs> this this guy is just unhinged. Like, I just, I can't even begin to, like, think about what kind of place you have to be in to cause this much problems. Like, how? Like, Imagine- who sits there and they're like, I'm going to send pornography to politicians. Just Imagine just getting fun. a warning from Canada Post being like, we will prosecute you if you do not stop. <laughs> the fact that Canada Post was, like, on board enough to even notice that is amazing on its own. <laughs> like, they are fucking I do not have a very high opinion of Canada Post. 
Well, this was the the nineties, so it was a different time. It's just they were less time. understaffed then, maybe. Um, I I don't know. I feel like just being shitty is one of their one of their community guidelines. I feel like that's just a forever <laughs> thing. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um. So when the Saskatchewan facility closed down in the summer of 1997. Clifford was transferred back east to the Super Maximum Security Special Handling Unit in saint anne de plains north of Montreal in Quebec, and controversy developed in March 2010 when the media disclosed that Clifford was receiving two federal government benefits from Canada while imprisoned, a total of $1,169.47 monthly. Olson was... Av- eligible to receive the Canadian Old Age Security Pension and all persons who meet residency requirements as long or as the length of time in Canada are eligible to receive this pension at 65. When he turned 70 on January 1st, 2010, he was also eligible to receive the Guaranteed Income Supplement awarded to um, pensioners with low income and the money in question was being held in a trust for him so people are like what the fuck why are we paying him like almost like twelve hundred dollars a month for fucking murdering people when he already got a hundred thousand dollars yeah that doesn't make any sense either so the canadian taxpayers federation testified before the federal standing committee for human resources development to have mps pass Bill C-31, which would terminate pension benefits for prisoners. The organization also presented the government with 46,000 pension signatures, requesting that Clifford no longer receive the benefits, and Prime Minister Stephen Harper asked government officials to look into the issue. On June 1, 2010, the government moved to terminate his payments, calling the fact that he had been receiving them outrageous and offensive and in september 2010 clifford sent one of his old age security checks to the sun media reporter peter worthington with a note asking him to forward the check to harper's campaign for re-election weird (laughs) what a guy what a man so the last futile attempt before like the last futile appearance before the national parole board was in november of 2010 um clifford said this is the final time and he said never again i'm out and then was refused parole and in september 2011 the media reported that clifford had terminal colon cancer and had been transferred to a hospital in lavelle quebec he died on September 30th, 2011, at the age of 71. Good. He's gone now. Not a problem anymore. Yep. He gone. <laughs> as, as you're rubbing your head, you're like, what a headache this guy is. What a man. Like, what a piece of shit, also. Literally everything about him, from the beginning to the end, was just super shitty. Like, this guy super sucked in every way that you could possibly suck. Like, right until the end. Literally, right until the end, was a shit person from beginning to end. Yep, but 
that was a that was a good story, Jen. Like I really had no idea anything about that stuff about the Canada's first uh, one of his, the first serial killers. Yeah, I know. Me either. Um, I, I think it's interesting that he was known as the Beast of British Columbia. That seems very contradictory. I'm not gonna lie, because all I can think about, like, when I think about British Columbia, is that their slogan is "Beautiful British Columbia." Mm-hmm. It's so it's literally the Beast of British Columbia. The Beast of Beautiful British Columbia just slowly turns into Beauty and the Beast, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Also, uh, Canada's national monster. <laughs> yeah, they're not very cool names. Not to say like you know people who murder other people should have cool names but it's it just seems to have a little extra layer of lame to it it does fucking canadians yeah but that i guess that does bring us to the end of our show yes it does yes um if you guys would like to see more of us you can check us out on our website which is www.wheelofcrime.com uh we do also have a patreon if you would like to donate to help the show that is at Wheel of Crime on Patreon. We also have our different social medias that you can take a look at us on, which is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. All of them are at Wheel of Crime. And if you like our show and you want to su- help support us in a way that is free, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review there because that will help us across all of the different platforms that we host on. And by leaving us a five-star review, you are just being really super nice and helpful. And I'm very thankful for you. And I think that was it for all the plugins. Yes, that's it. Uh, we will see y'all next week with another episode of this podcast that you're listening to right now. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yes. All right. Bye for now. Bye.